0: famous play, As You Like It, is one of his most popular comedies. Perhaps the first line of the play is the most well-known. It begins like this, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are players. All the world's a stage and all the men and women are players. That, That line to me captures the essence of the book of Exodus. The world in the book of Exodus is this divinely made stage playing out a great story. Exodus is this epic, dramatic story that records the activity of the very real Yahweh God who is acting on behalf of his people. Bushes are burning, locusts are swarming, snakes are striking, there are pillars of cloud and fire, there's lightning and thunder from a mountain, and there's a whole lot of water, wind, and sand. The God of Exodus is at work on the world stage. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, picking up the storyline of the book of Genesis. It's about the actions of the God of Genesis, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, He made a promise to those patriarchs to make them into a great nation and to give them a land and to give them his blessing. Uh, You may recall that Genesis concluded with Joseph and uh, Jacob's whole family, really, down in Egypt during a famine and being cared for by Joseph, who provided safe haven for his Uh, Brothers, about 400 years have passed now, and that's when the book of Exodus begins. The word Exodus means exit. This is the story of God's people making an exit. It's the story of God's people leaving Egypt, the land of slavery, which largely takes up the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 18. But the book does have a second half. Uh, The book has a second half that takes place really at Mount Sinai, chapters 19 through 40. Exodus is not just about God drawing his people out. It's also about God drawing his people near. God brings them out to bring them toward himself. And friends, he does the same for us. God pulls us out and then pulls us in. He pulls us out and then he pulls us in. He pulls us out and then he pulls us in. In, in Exodus chapter 19, after they get out, God says to, me, God says to, to them, now, now you will be my treasured possession. God redeems them, yes, but then he gives them his covenant law. And Exodus chapter 31 says, he does this so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So Exodus is about God saving a people and then setting them apart for himself. And that's exactly what the same God does today with us. He delivers his people and then he dwells with his people. He redeems us and then he brings us into his presence. Exodus is this journey from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, from bondage to glory. And that's a journey that we all must take in life. And so the story of Exodus is our story. Old Testament scholar and commentator Alec Matyer said, if you ask the average Jewish person what the book of Exodus is about, here's what the average Jewish person would say. If you asked our friends across the street at the Chabad who just celebrated Yom Kippur this past week, here's what they would say Exodus is about. They would say, the Exodus is about how we were enslaved in a foreign land and under a sentence of death, but but we took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and a great mediator led us out to set us free. And, and now we're on our way to the promised land. Friends, think about those words. That's exactly our story as well. Almost exactly. Uh, let me read it again. The Exodus is about how we were enslaved in a foreign land and under a sentence of death, but we took shelter under the blood of the Lamb and a great mediator led us out to set us free. Now we are on our way to the promised land. Their story is our story. This is why we go through Exodus. You might say, why why Exodus? Why are we going to look at this book for this entire fall season? When we look at the world all around us and everything that you have going on in your personal life, what in the world does Exodus have to do with you and me? Here, in this year, 2021, in this season. Well, if you're wondering what God is doing in the world, yesterday and today, if you're wondering what are his priorities, the book of Exodus is a great place to start answering those kinds of big questions. Exodus shows us that God has certain priorities. He's, he's, he's about keeping his promises to his people. He's in the business of redeeming uh, his children from slavery. He's, he's about thwarting the enemy's plans in this, this world, and he wants to set us free, and he wants to put on display his glory for the entire world to see. See, Exodus is foundational to us understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many people call Exodus the gospel of the Old Testament. There's at least two dozen references to the Red Sea crossing in the rest of the Bible, as well as other allusions that look back upon the Exodus as kind of a paradigm for salvation. In the New Testament, there's lots of references to the the book of Exodus, Uh, The gospel writer Matthew begins in chapter 2 by quoting Hosea, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son, originally a reference to Exodus and, and God's firstborn son Israel. But Matthew applies that statement to the Lord Jesus Christ and says, This is fulfilled in our Lord. Hebrews chapter 2 compares Jesus to Moses and says he's he's a greater Moses. In Luke chapter 9, the Transfiguration Mountain has Jesus at the top with two figures from the Old Testament, Elijah and who else? Moses. And it says in Luke chapter 9 that they're discussing his departure. The word for departure there in Luke 9 is actually the word Exodus. They're discussing Jesus' exodus. There's a a greater exodus coming with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. The Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has now been sacrificed as the blood has been shed, and we apply by faith the blood of the Lord Jesus to the doorposts of our hearts as he saves us from the wrath of God. It was Exodus that Jesus was celebrating when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Friends, if if there's one Old Testament story that the New Testament invites us to read Christocentrically and with Christ at the center, it is the story of Exodus. Why? Because understanding Exodus is one of the keys to understanding the work of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today I just want to dip our toes into the water a little bit to whet our appetite and and explain some things from the first couple of chapters of Exodus. If you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 1 as we look at chapters 1 and 2 for today. And I want to look at four major themes in these chapters, but also they are major themes throughout the book of Exodus as well. First, we will see that Exodus is about God keeping his promises. Second, we'll see that Exodus is about God redeeming his people. Third, we'll see that Exodus is about God thwarting the enemy's plans. And then last, we will see that Exodus is really about God glorifying his name. So that's where we're headed today. Before we do that, why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving your word, spirit, for inspiring this text And Lord Jesus, we ask that when we look upon your word, we would see a picture of yourself, God. I pray that you would open up our eyes, ears, and hearts, most of all, uh, to understand what you have to say to us today and throughout this series during this season as we study this ancient book, may it become real and relevant in our lives. And for that, Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Exodus chapter 1 begins with these famous words. Verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Let's pause right there, right, right off the bat. First, you don't, you don't see this in English, but the very first word of the books of Exodus is the word and, the, the Hebrew word vav. The word and begins this book, telling us that this story is part of a bigger story. Exodus, of course, is not the beginning. To understand Exodus, you have to first understand Genesis. If you're going to sit down and watch uh, a, a sequel. You don't start with part two of a movie, right? If you sit down and watch The Lord of the Rings, you're not going to start with The Two Towers. You're going to go back and you're going to watch The Fellowship of the Ring first. Otherwise, you tune into The Two Towers and you're like, who's this guy, Bilbo? What's Frodo? Why is there a ring? What's the Mount Mordor? And why is there a volcano? And, and who, who the heck are all these hobbits, right? You don't even know. So in order to understand The Two Towers, you've got to go back and first watch The Fellowship of, ring, uh, Fellowship of the Ring. There's a foundation that's been built. Just like that, to understand Exodus, we've got to go back Back to Genesis and realize there's been some promises that have been made in the book of Genesis. Probably the most famous promise, the most important promise in Genesis, maybe the most important promise in the whole Bible, is called the Proto-Evangel or the first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God promises that the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, what you may not realize is that one of the symbols of ancient Egypt was a cobra. Pharaoh would actually wear this symbol. Everybody would have known this. And so in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh would be considered to be on the wrong side of God's people. But you got to know Genesis to know about that. And God has made promises to his people in Genesis, like chapter 3, verse 15. God has also made a major promise to Abraham, that God would bless Abraham and, and his family and make him into a great nation and also give him a great name, in fact, when, when God will call Moses in Exodus chapter three, God will first refer to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why to assure Moses that just as He was present with the patriarchs, He will be present with them as well, and the same God will be present with you today. Next, I want you to notice here that the book of exodus uh, says that they were fruitful and multiplied. I'll show, I, I'll show you this on the next slide. They were fruitful and they multiplied. That language also harkens back to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation mandate. They are fulfilling God's command in Genesis chapter 1, and it also reminds us of the blessing that God had given to Abraham. They are multiplying, and his, his descendants are as numerous as the stars, just as God had promised The first four words of the book are, These are the names in English. That's actually the title of the book of Exodus in the Jewish Bible. It's a very significant title because names are really important in the book of Exodus. We're going to see right here the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's critical for our understanding. We're also going to see some other names in the book of Exodus. Probably the most important name we will learn for the very first time in the Bible is the name that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush, the name Yahweh, or I am who I am. This book is about the name of God being glorified. These are the names. What's also important in this book is who is not named. One of the things that scholars debate is which particular pharaoh we were talking about here in the book of Exodus. There's theories, Amenhotep, Ramses, and we'll talk about that another time. But the point is, we don't know because pharaoh is not named in the book of Exodus, and that is purposeful. Here's the greatest man in the whole world, yet God sees no reason to remember his name. Rather, we see the names of the 12 tribes. We're going to see the names of the slaves of the Hebrews. And here in our section today, we'll see in a few minutes, the names of these two Hebrew midwives. Why? Right off the bat, God is communicating to us that he is actually not on the side of the mighty and the powerful. That God is not on the side of those who are high and lifted up in this world. Rather, the book of Exodus is going to tell us that God is on the side of the weak God is on the side of the insignificant. God is on the side of those who are on the outside. God is on the side of those who are marginalized and those who are oppressed. And God will use the weak things of this world to confound the wise. The kingdom of God is this place where the people that this world has made to feel insignificant, like outsiders, are now given a sense of divine purpose and dignity by God himself. Now, when the story of Genesis ends, Jacob's family, totaling about 70 people, are down in Egypt, living in privilege since they're Their brother Joseph was the all-powerful prime minister of Egypt, and it's in this environment that God's people grow and they flourish. Though they are down in Egypt for a season, they're given a separate land, the land of Goshen, where they can live in isolation and in purity. And so Egypt becomes a kind of incubator for this baby nation so that they can grow and be strengthened and be blessed by the lord until they're large enough until they're strong enough until they multiply enough that they are prepared as a nation now to conquer the land that the lord has given them a land flowing with milk and honey and now they're ready and what does that mean well it means something very important it means god keeps his promises he has made a promise to abraham to make him into a great nation and here we see god has made good on his promise Friends, if God kept his promises to them, then that means God keeps his promises to you. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. No matter how difficult or hostile your circumstances are, you can count on the fact that God will keep his promises to you. And this is what we learn right here. We can live optimistically. We can live positively, even in the face of hostility, because our God keeps his promises And just like them, we are to trust him and place our faith in his word. Exodus shows us the way. But one person didn't like all this multiplying, and that was, of course, Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 1 continues by saying, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So sadly, Joseph has died, and even more sadly, The memory of Joseph has faded in subsequent generations. And this new king, this new pharaoh, feels threatened by this group. And he fears that they might rebel against him. And so he puts their growing population into cheap forced labor, into slavery. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Say that with me, church. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them Ruthlessly. Now, as background, you know that Egypt was the mightiest world empire at this time, around 1500 BC. Egypt was the dominant source of military might and glory. We still have structures that stand to this day, images that remind us of their superior strength. As one of the seven wonders of the world, we see here uh, the pyramids were over 40 stories high. The Sphinx was 66 feet High symbols of Egyptian might and glory and strength and the empire still exist uh, today. Meanwhile, God's children, God's children, are forced into oppression to help with these kinds of projects. And so this is a dark time for the people of God. Verse 14 makes this really clear. It says this: "They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So here we see this theme in the book of Exodus, which is this theme of breaking Uh, free from slavery and bondage. Now, every English translation obscures what verse 14 says here in the Hebrew because it's really almost impossible and redundant to translate this literally. But it uses this word uh, servitude or avada over and over and over again. It's the word for service or slavery. Literally, if I would translate verse 14 from the Hebrew, it would read like this. They made their lives bitter with serving, with brick and mortar, with every kind of serving. With every kind of serving, they made them serve which sounds kind of ridiculous and uh, overly repetitious. But don't miss the point that the original is trying to communicate to us here. They were bitterly enslaved to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh as their master, which leads us to the next point. Exodus is about God redeeming his people. The word redemption will become a very important theological word throughout the Bible. The word redemption means to purchase a slave and to set them free to purchase a slave and to set them free. Now, their slavery in the book of Exodus was literal and terrible and real, and they needed liberation. But their, their slavery also becomes a, a complex picture of and an apt metaphor for our need for liberation from our sinful human condition. In other words, the Bible will later speak of sin as a kind of slavery, as a kind of bondage to a master. And the Bible says everyone has a master and everyone serves someone or something, including believers whose master is supposed to be Yahweh God. In fact, when Moses stands up to Pharaoh and Pharaoh finally lets the people go, uh, it actually says this, speaking for Yahweh, let my people go so that they may serve me. Same word. He'll say that word multiple times. In other words, Exodus is a movement from the wrong kind of servitude to the right kind of servitude. From a servitude of serving the wrong master to serving the right master, God. But their freedom and their bondage are so complicated here, just as ours is as well, because after they are set free, they begin longing for their time of bondage again just fast forward with me for a second. After Pharaoh lets them go, they come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh then chases after them and hunts them down. And after they've been liberated, they begin to grumble against Moses in chapter 14. And, and it says here, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert and die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, isn't that something? Here they get out of bondage, but they are lured back into slavery. They are painting pictures of Egypt and leaving out what lacks, which seems almost irrational, but yet, if we're honest, we do the same exact thing. That's the nature of the human condition. See, we all need someone or something to serve, we all have to trust in something as our source of satisfaction and meaning and happiness in life. But the hard truth is that nothing can or should ever take that place in our hearts except for God alone. But if it does, the scripture says that thing has become your master. That thing has become like like an idol to you. You're serving that thing. Now you say, well, Pastor Dave, how do I know if something in my life has become an idol? Well, the short answer is anything that is in your life that's more important than God, that's an idol. Anything. Money, career, family, substance, even ministry that we look to as a source of ultimate happiness and satisfaction can become an idol. Anything. And you know it's an idol because if that thing is threatened or that thing is taken away, whatever it is, if you lose it, you completely melt down with anger and worry and fear. When, when whatever is my master is taken away, I'm not just disappointed, I'm devastated. Just like Pharaoh, whatever rules my heart, whatever rules over me, comes back to me and says, Don't you see? You need me or you'll die. Don't you see? You need me or you will perish. That's the lesson from Pharaoh, and that's the lesson in the book of Exodus that we need to get as well, and here it is. If you don't make Yahweh your God, your idols will pull you back into bondage. If you don't make Yahweh your God, your idols will pull you back into bondage. And so the book of Exodus begins to teach us about this complicated dynamic of slavery in the human heart, but it does so in a dramatic story. And just like them, God says to you and me, Dave, don't you see? You're redeemed. Don't you see? I've set you free from your old master, Romans chapter 6. Sin is not your master anymore. Embrace your freedom. Don't go back. Keep going and stay with me. We are going to the promised land. So how about you? What is that idol in your heart that tugs at you, that pulls you back into bondage? Exodus is about breaking free. Exodus is about your exit from that kind of bondage. Exodus is about you getting out. We'll learn much more about that in our series, but I just wanted to tease that topic for a second. I want to go back to our story here in Exodus chapter 1, because things are really bad in slavery, but they're about to go from bad to worse, if you can imagine that. Take a look. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. So Pharaoh then tells the midwives to begin this massacre, this genocide, to kill their sons, to decrease the population so that they would not grow up and fight back in warfare and their daughters would then grow up and be forced to marry Egyptian men and then lose kind of the Hebrew identity there but this plan fails because the midwives don't do that defying the word of Pharaoh and instead obeying the word of Yahweh verse 18 continues by saying then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them why have you done this Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Is that true? I don't know. Call me tomorrow. Let's talk. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So Pharaoh's plans again are spoiled and then he gets another plan, verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Can I just speak to the women, the ladies in the room for a second, the moms, the grandmoms here? What feelings arise right here at this point in the story? I can assure you that the anger and the fear and the anxiety were at a fevered pitch. Yet, It's exactly in this context and against this background that our God, the great I Am, begins to work sovereignly, undermining the murderous plans of the enemy of God's people. Which leads us to the third point today. Exodus is about God thwarting the enemy's plans Exodus is about God thwarting the enemy's plans. Let me just pause and help you notice some irony here in the beginning so far. First, Pharaoh tries to put them into forced slavery, but still Israel grows. Ironically, though the Pharaoh does not want them to multiply, they do anyway. Remember, it said the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Then Pharaoh tries to have the Hebrew sons killed, but the midwives refuse, and God blesses the midwives with, families for doing so and obeying him. Every single plan of the enemy backfires. And then we have the biggest backfire of all as in Exodus chapter 2, we meet the main character of our story. But he doesn't show up like Braveheart on the back of a horse with blue paint on his face. The hero of this story shows up as a fragile, vulnerable infant. Chapter 2, verse 1. So they keep him for three months before they make this, it says papyrus basket here in the NIV. The actual Hebrew word is the word for ark. It's the same exact word for ark used in Genesis 6 through 8 to describe the story of Noah. Same exact coding as well. Tar and Here's this waterproof little basket ark thing and this baby goes inside of it and we're wondering as the readers who've already read the book of Genesis, right? Is the guy in the ark gonna live? I bet you the guy in the ark's gonna live because I've heard this story before. I'm feeling pretty optimistic about this little boy in the ark. And sure enough, in chapter two, verse five, of all people, it's the very daughter of Pharaoh who finds the ark. 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, as you study the literature, you realize verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2 are the very centerpiece of this entire passage. This is the, the focal point. The verbs here change tense, and you see that the, the verbs, uh, she opens, and she saw, and she felt sorry, and she said in the Hebrew, are in the uh, they're in the uh, historical present tense. I'm sorry to get in the weeds here, but that, what that means is for, it's the perspective of, this looks like it's happening right now. The director has taken his camera, and he has put it over the shoulder of the princess, and his camera angle is seeing the angle from exactly the point of view, from exactly the point of view of the the daughter of Pharaoh herself. And he's moved now from this panoramic perspective of the whole world to this very individual perspective of looking here at the actions of one woman. It's really quite beautiful. Verse seven. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, a loyal daughter of Pharaoh should not defy her father's decree, right? Who is behind the actions of this princess? Behind the scenes in the book of Exodus, we're starting to see the providential hand of Yahweh God. The point of Exodus is that Pharaoh, though he may claim to be, is not the one in control, God is. Pharaoh is outwitted and undermined by five women here. The two Hebrew midwives, Puah and Shiphrah, Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' sister, and Moses' mother. Big shout out to the women here today. I want you to see that God has a purpose and a job for every single woman in here. And God wants to use you as part of his story. Think of it. Pharaoh's daughter comes at just the right time. The baby cries at just the right time. God provides a wet nurse at just the right time. And then Moses is cared for by his own mother who's now being paid to do so. Which means Moses will be raised as a Hebrew in his young years. And he will also be raised with all of the privileges of Egypt as well. Moses is saved from Pharaoh to live in his court, and one day Moses will defeat Pharaoh by the power of God. Amazing. What do we learn from this irony? What we learn is that God can thwart the enemy's plan. God can thwart the enemy's plan. That's true today, friends. This world is at war. We are in a spiritual war, and the people of God have an enemy. But no matter how bitter the battle, there is only going to be one winner. Just like the people of God back then, today we as the church need to trust God. And we will experience this battle as well. It will be hostile at times. But we will also experience the faithfulness of Yahweh God and his victory over the enemy and his thwarting over Satan's plan in your life. Let me summarize the rest of chapter 2. Moses grows up in the royal palace. Now, some have speculated, if you've seen the Charlton Heston version, that that he was next in line to be the heir to the throne. I think that's also the storyline of the Disney Prince of Egypt story. The text is actually silent about that. Nonetheless, he does grow up in a royal setting in Egypt in an elite class until 40 years go by, according to Acts 7.23. And one day he goes out to his brothers, to the Hebrews, And he sees an Egyptian mistreating, beating a Hebrew slave. And he's enraged by this, and he strikes him dead. Then Pharaoh finds out and tries to kill Moses. And so Moses flees Egypt to the land of Midian and sits down by a well where there are some women there being mistreated. And he fights back against the men who are mistreating these particular uh, women. And Moses saves the women. After this, Moses is welcomed into their home and meets his future wife with whom he will live for the next 40 years as a shepherd in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Midianite desert. Moses is now the perfect candidate to be a leader and to be a liberator of the people of God. He has a heart for the Hebrews, but he also has the training of an Egyptian statesman. But God knew he needed one more thing humility and this is what moses learns in 40 years alone in the desert see first god needed to save moses before he could use moses to save others first he had to redeem moses before he could use moses to redeem others first he had to prepare the way for moses before he would entrust moses to prepare the way for others the same is true for you and me friends First, God has to do a work of redemption inside of me. Before I can ever bless anyone else, first, God has to do His work of salvation and redemption inside of your heart before He can use you to be a blessing to others. I emphasize this because you might be wondering why God has you in the desert, why God has you in the place that you're in right now, and why you're going through what you're going through right now. Well, perhaps the answer is He has a very big plan and purpose for you to use you and to lead others from what troubles them. It's a pattern of how God works. And like Moses, we need to trust the process. So some time passes, 40 years to be exact. Moses is out there with the sheep. And then Exodus chapter 2 records some ominous words. The the final words in the passage today uh, reflect a shifting of the scene, a shifting of the attention from Moses to God. Look with me at this exciting finish. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Notice the verbs here in verse 23. Israel groaned and Israel cried out. The parallels here are obvious. Remember, it was Moses who was crying out as a baby, and we were wondering who will care for him. But now it's all of the children of Israel crying out, and we're wondering who will care for them. The answer, of course, is found here in verses 24 and 25. Look at the verbs again. It says God heard and God remembered and God looked and God was concerned. Now, the word remember here doesn't mean it slipped God's mind or that he got distracted. God's not like, oh, yeah, I promised Abraham something. No, no. <laughs> Remembering in the Bible is a covenantal term. It means that God is deciding to act upon his word, upon his promise. It's used many, many times. But so far, we've already seen in the book of Genesis in chapter 8 that God remembered Noah. And when he remembered Noah, it was time for the floodwaters to recede, and God was going to help Noah. It also tells us that God remembered Rachel in the book of Genesis, and when God remembered Rachel in the book of Genesis, that's when she conceived with Joseph. And here we see that God is remembering again, and we know that this is about the time where God gets spurred to action. We, the readers, see that something's about to go down, or in the words of C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the characters says this, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. God has heard their cry, God has seen their affliction, and he has remembered his covenant. Friends, ever been there? Don't you see this today? This is not a history lesson. This is a 21st century Reality And friends, if God heard their cry and saw their affliction back then, then that also means God hears your cry and God sees your affliction today. Do you believe that? That's the story of Exodus. You may not realize what God has been doing. This has been a tough season, I think, for all of you. But God has heard your cry and he has seen your groaning and Aslan is on the move. God is on the move and God is at work in your life and he is preparing to act. That was true back then, that's true today. Some of you are in a dark place right now and you need God to help you get out. Some of you are in bondage and you need God to set you free. Some of you need an exodus and this is the season where God is gonna take you to another level. I pray that this whole series will be a time where God does some amazing things in our church body. But first, got to make one last point. Yes, Exodus is about redemption, and Exodus is about freedom, and Exodus is about Aslan being on the move, and God rescuing his people, and, and all of that. But primarily, Exodus is about God glorifying his name. Exodus challenges the notion that God is somehow removed from this world or is passive he is not the God of deism where he chooses not to intervene into the affairs of this world. No, God listens and God hears and God sees and God remembers and God intervenes and calls and judges and rescues and redeems. Our God cares and our God wants to interact with you as part of his creation. He wants to be known. One of the biggest questions in the book of Exodus comes from the lips of Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks Moses, Who is the Lord? The entire book of Exodus is the answer to that question. Not only is his name, I am that I am, but God will show up as the main character in the rest of this book, not Moses. Yes, Moses is a character greatly used by God, but it is God who's performing these amazing signs through Moses in front of Pharaoh. Moses is only able to accomplish the task that God has given him Because of who God is. Why does God even call Moses to bring the Exodus to come to pass? Exodus chapter 6 says this, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Let me put that on the screen for you. I'm doing all of this because you will know who I am, the Lord your God. This is important because the book of Exodus directly challenges our man-centered anthropocentric worldview, that that it's all about us. Remember Comcast had that marketing campaign a few years back where Jane Lynch was on the commercials telling all of the customers, you're the center of the universe? Exodus would beg to differ. Human beings are not the center of the universe. God is. Sometimes we get distracted and we think it's all about us, but it's not. God's purpose is to reveal himself and his own glory, first to Moses, then to the people of God, even to Pharaoh, and to you and to me as well. This is what God is doing. Exodus chapter 9, verse 14 says it this way, I'm doing all this so that you will know that there is no one like me on all the earth. God has conceived this whole drama of Exodus. He scripted it. He choreographed it. All the world's a stage and all the men and women are players. And the point of this play is to display his might and his power and his glory for all. Who is the Lord? He is the great I am. The God who was, is, is to come. He's the God who redeems. He's the God who saves. He's the God who's sovereign over Pharaoh. He raised up Pharaoh and he will put Pharaoh down. And he is doing all of this to display his glory. Later on in the book of Exodus, Moses will say to God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. I want to see you. And in that moment, God reveals to Moses just his backward parts and Moses gets a lesson about the identity of God there. It says this, the Lord gives this self-description as he passes by saying, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is who God is. This is what the book of Exodus is ultimately about. It is about the identity of God, the God of the Bible. Why is that important? Because a right understanding of God is important to you to get you through every single possible circumstance in your life. The nation of Israel had one thing going for them, God himself, but that was all they needed. And friends, that's all you need as well. Do you know the Lord? All the world's a stage. All the men and women are players. There's a theater, and the main event is the glory and majesty of our great God. You're the players on the stage, Are you living your life in such a way that God is being glorified in you through your commitment to him, through your serving him, through your worship of him? Is that what your life is all about, glorifying God? Can you imagine a church full of people committed to that end, to the glory of God? Can you imagine a group of men and women, boys and girls and individuals committed to this one great purpose, the glory of God? Let's be that church. As the worship team comes, let me remind you that Exodus is about God keeping his promises. Exodus is about God redeeming his people, for they need redemption from slavery. Exodus is about God thwarting the enemy's plans, and he wants to thwart the enemy's plans in your life too. And Exodus is about glorifying his name, for he is worthy of praise. As the hymn writer exhorts us, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise Him, for He is our health and salvation. Come all who hear, now to His temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you for preserving this text and this book. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word in a mighty way this fall, as we learn in a fresh way who you are. May we reorient our hearts and our lives away from any other idol or anything that we serve, and may we direct all of our service, attention, and worship to you, for you are worthy. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior and our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.